Welcome to Someday is Now, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week, we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a space and place to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Some Days Now. This week, I am honored to introduce to you our guest this week, Whitney Yang. She is a Hmong American. And one of the visions for this podcast is that we would interview a wide range of Asian American women. And often, we tend to think of Asian American as Chinese, Japanese, or Korean, but there are so many other Asians that are not represented, and the Hmong are among them. Uh, I learned about Hmong Americans uh, through my friendship with Whitney back in 2014 and, it's, and have since met a number of really remarkable men and women um, and have been so impressed by the culture, the commitment to family, and just a beautiful, beautiful people group. So the Hmong Americans um, are new, new, newer immigrants to the United States. And this week's Did You Know is the secret war that uh, Whitney refers to is during the Vietnam War in Laos, there was actually American CIA soldiers who went to uh, Laos and secretly recruited Hmong, the Hmong men and even ultimately kids who were 11 and 12 years old, little boys, to fight as foot soldiers um, against the, the communist Viet Cong in, during the Vietnam War. And the tragic uh, outcome of this was that the U.S. lost and that there was no exit strategy. And so the Hmong were ultimately left to fend for themselves and were captured and uh, cruelly punished um, for helping the Americans. So fast forward then in the uh, mid, mid to late 70s, um, there was a, a large immigration of Hmongs from Laos and Thailand to the United States. So that was a secret war. And even to this day, the U.S. does not recognize the Hmong soldiers uh, who helped the Americans in the war as war veterans here in the U.S. So um, I would really encourage you to Google um, about the Hmong uh, involvement in the secret war and to learn about Hmong culture. Um, I think just there was just so many encouraging parts of Whitney and I's conversation and truly she's just such a delightful woman and such a great example of um, the the struggle of East and West, and I, and I heard that throughout our conversation. So I'm excited for you to hear 
our conversation today. Again, just um, so encouraged by your feedback and would love to continue to hear from you what you've enjoyed about our podcasts and even recommending um, other guests to interview. So without further ado, this is this week's episode of Someday Is Now with Whitney Yang. Welcome to Someday Is Now. I am so excited to introduce to you this week's guest, Whitney Yang. Whitney is an actor. She's best known in her role back in 2009, 2010-ish with Clint Eastwood, the movie Grand Torino, which really highlighted Hmong culture and Whitney was one of the stars in that movie. She's also been briefly in the Batman Superman movie back in 2014. She's now a mom of three young boys and I am just thrilled to have Whitney here. Thanks for being on the show, Whitney. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I'm so excited. Well, maybe you could start off and just share how we know each other. And then I have a whole bunch of questions I would love to ask you. Sure. So um, you and I, Viv, we met on a missions project um, back in 2000. Was it 2014? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, 2014. And um, yeah, I just remember meeting you and you were just such an amazing person and you were just like this bright light of energy. And that's basically how we met (laughs) working and um, yeah, just being on a team together. Uh, Well, I love meeting you and Tumi and just having that time together. We were in Hawaii, like someone has to go there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we had to suffer in Hawaii, (laughs) actually (laughs) the dorms and it still is one of my favorite summers when I think about it. Like mm-hmm. here and I were just driving and talking and we were kind of reminiscing. We just had separate celebrated our 28th anniversary. So we were kind of walking down memory lane. And honestly, that summer with 2014 was still one of my favorite summers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you were part of it. It's so fun yeah. to be able to talk to you now. Well, mm-hmm. I would love for um, our listeners to share some of your ethnic journey as Hmong American, just tell us kind of even some background in history and just kind of like help us learn. But I would love for you to be able to share like your journey as Hmong American. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in, I wouldn't say a very traditional, traditional Hmong household. Um, my dad, he was actually married to a white woman first and that they had kids. And so my dad was actually more Americanized than most of my uncles. So, but then like, because we were still really close with our families and our uncles and our cousins, we like, we knew about all the traditions and, you know, we were involved in it, but like within my household, my dad was more open to um, non-traditional things that we could do. Um, So that's, that's a little bit about that, but Growing up and as we became more Americanized through the years, I guess, um, like I actually was losing some of that. Like I realized, I didn't realize until later that I wasn't actually speaking as much Hmong as I used to anymore. And then when I was in high school, I realized, oh, I, I can't speak it very clearly or like very, you know, I can't really articulate what I'm trying to say. So that's when I decided, you know what, I need to pick this back up. Like, I I don't want to lose this. This is something that is important to me. So in my journey, going from being very 
um, accustomed and used to my whole culture and the, you know, speaking the language and all the traditions and then getting older and then becoming more Americanized and losing some of that and, um, wanting to pick it back up. But then now being married, um, and living with my in-laws, cause that's something that for, you know, me being a daughter-in-law living with my in-laws for some time is something that's valued, um, for the, uh, for my husband's family, right? So, and especially with my husband being the youngest son in the family, it's it was kind of expected that he and I would live with them forever. So we did live with them for the first five years of our marriage, but living with them has actually forced me to have to speak the language even more and to be, you know, because they're more traditional, even though they're not like shaman traditional, they're, I guess you could say Christian traditional. So they don't necessarily follow the religion, the original uh, religion for Hmong people, but then um, like they still know all the rules. They still know all the customs and traditions. And so they still value things like, you know, having the daughter-in-law cook uh, (laughs) dinner and so things like that were like, I, all the skills I learned and grew up with, like I still had to use those things, you know? And, um, so I actually would say that at this point in my life, I'm actually, um, even more familiar with my, my customs and traditions and just being extra aware of like, I am Hmong, you know, and Mm -hmm. the things that I grew up learning, but these are the things that I now am really incorporating into my life, you know, and being conscious about it. So when I'm out in public and, um, or like talking to people who are not Hmong, I feel like I'm more comfortable with being able to explain who I am and where I come from. So, and just being even more aware of being Hmong and having that be a part of my identity. So, you know, it's, um, it's not that, Things have really changed with who I am, but it was just a process of understanding, you know, who I am and how that works in my life. So that's just a quick summary. Well, not quick, I would say, but a summary of my journey. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Now, were you born in Wisconsin or were you born overseas or? I was born in Michigan. And okay. then I moved to Wisconsin when I got married. Mm-hmm. Oh, when you got married. So, yeah. when you're, um, so what about your parents? Like, where were they born? And give me some background of just Hmong, like just the, the history of the Hmong people. Yeah, my parents were, they were not born here. So they were actually born in, um, in Laos. Um, and then what happened was, you know, during the time of the secret war with, um, America, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but, um, you know, the Hmong people actually helped with the secret war. And so they were actually, um, in my father-in-law, he is, he has such an amazing story about like what he was doing during the time. Um, because he actually helped lead a lot of the Hmong people and they like had to go fight and he has a great story, but, um, so basically the Hmong people were involved in that war a lot. And then what happened was um, the U.S. lost. And because the U.S. had asked the Hmong people to help with the war, they, I guess they felt like a need to help them because Hmong people were really poor and they were kind of just, um, for one, they were familiar with the area. You know, they knew the ways through like the jungle areas and um, the woods. And so um, 
that's why that's one of the reasons why the U.S. had asked Hmong people to help because they were more familiar with it. And but after all of that happened and they ended up losing the war, the U.S. actually helped bring the Hmong people in as a way of thanking them. You could say, mm-hmm. um, or I this should say, in us. Seventies. Yeah, this was. Um, Around that time, well, because even after the war, like there were still, you know, um, Hmong people running around and dealing with like the aftermath of that too. So mm. yeah, this was way back. Yep. And my um, my dad actually came over when he was about 16. He came over to the U.S. And so um, he, and that's probably why he was more Americanized too, because he mm. wasn't um, like so involved with all that he had come over a little earlier, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So the Hmong people came over and then, um, that's kind of how, like, I guess you would say my generation became the first generation, um, Hmong Americans. And, and I guess for that term, it's, some people say it would be like the immigrants are first generation. And then some people would say it could be the children who are the, you know, natural born citizens here. So um, I guess it depends on how you interpret that to be, but yeah, so that's how the Hmong people came over and um, now we're here and trying to live life. (laughs) Yes. Well, I remember in Hawaii, even just sitting down and talking with you and learning just about the history and I think you had shared and you can correct me if I'm wrong that there are like six different last names that is that correct like oh there are there are actually more there um I know for sure there are like 18 okay but then there are actually um okay I say that for sure but now I'm actually starting to doubt myself (laughs) because there are some last names that like they're not or like they're not really Hmong, Hmong last names, but they're kind of like over time have become like part of the list. And so yes, yes. Yeah, there is, there's, there are more than six though, that's for sure. Yes. Okay, good. Well, I remember just like, kind of like Armenian last names. Like if you have a IAN at the, the end of a last name, mm-hmm. chances are people are Armenian. And so when I hear like the, the last name Her, H-E-R, then I think, okay, that's Hmong. Mm-hmm. Yang, like you're Whitney Yang, and that's among last names. But you know that was also my maiden name, so it's like kind of learning all of that. So it's, I just love learn. I think I, I just loved learning about your culture and just some of the the um, the traditions. Um, I think about some of the photos I've seen over the years. You know, with the traditional dress and so beautiful. And mm-hmm. I also remember. Um, I think you would. It was just like, well, what I've experienced thus far with, you know, my friends who are among is that there's a very tight community and it's almost like everyone knows everyone. And um, somehow they're just like just a couple degrees separated, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of the relationship. And then once you are kind of invited into the circle, then you're kind of part of the family too. And I experienced that in Chicago. It was like, I was speaking at a a conference for, um, um, students who had graduated who were going to be spending a year overseas doing some kind of a mission. And so there was a group that were going to Asia, but there was one of the gals on the team who's Hmong. 
And mm-hmm. she had an uncle, quote unquote. So I don't even know if it was a blood relative uncle, but everyone's auntie and uncle in right. culture, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and so they invited us over to their home and made the most amazing meal. And I just thought, here was a taste of Hmong culture and just the community and the family. And it was just, it was so awesome. I just, mm-hmm. you know, just left with me with a huge grin and so proud to know Hmong sisters and brothers. So, mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Yep. So, well, tell me some of, what are you proud of when you think about your heritage as a Hmong American? What are some of the aspects of that that you're, you find yourself feeling really proud of? Mm-hmm. So the one thing that I did think about was exactly what you were just talking about, you know, having a tight community. Um, growing up, that was the one thing that I remember the most is that, you know, my family, it wasn't just my immediate family, you know, like my uncles, cousins, everyone, um, knowing that they were there, knowing that we were there for them, you know, just that's the one thing of supporting each other and um, and just, just sorry, excuse me, I'm kind of sick here. Just knowing that um, that you, you're not alone, you know, especially being people who are really trying to find their voice and who they are in this American society among community where you can feel like that person knows what I'm going through, you know, or, you know, that your uncle has your back or even your cousins, you know, that, you know, if you're in school, if you don't have friends, that's okay. Like you have your cousins, you know, and actually growing up, um, in elementary school, middle school, like I had acquaintances in school, but then they weren't people. And, and for one, like we're kids, you know, there, there's, mm-hmm. I guess, you don't really learn the whole trust and honesty thing and to really be close until you're older. But, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had close friends during those days, but I always knew once I went back home, like my family, you know, my cousins, they were all there and, and I was going to go hang out with them. And, you know, that's where my comfort was. And so um, even now being older and living far away from my close cousins, um, like I, I don't feel concerned that I'm going to lose that relationship, you know, because I know that like we were just so close and I know that they're always there for me. Um, recently, just about a month ago, I had one of my childhood cousins or she's still my cousin, but you know, she came to visit me and she like, we haven't seen each other for such a long time and we just clicked right away. You know, it wasn't like that we were gone for so long and I was so happy to be able to provide chickens for her to go back home, you know, and, and that's the one thing when people do is we'll pack chicken for our guests to go back to drive back home. And, you know, it's just something where I'm like, I, I love serving you and I love helping you and being with you. And, you know, I love you visiting me and it's just that relationship. So that's the one thing about Hmong culture that I really love and am proud of that like we're all so close and, and we know that we've on you know, our parents have gone through the same thing. And yeah. so just wanting to stay close and help support one another. Mm, wow. Is there a term uh, for like this first generation where like, like I speak English to my sister. Mm-hmm. So do you speak English to your cousins or do you speak Hmong or do you speak a combo like a Monglish <laughs> or whatever? That? We speak a combination um, of both. And I find that throughout the years, as we get older, we speak a lot more English to each other. But then my um, my cousins who are from like Arkansas and Oklahoma, they they tend to speak a lot more Hmong because, like I said, my family was a little more Americanized, and so um, 
but their their families are more traditional too. So like they speak a lot more English with or not English, a lot more Hmong with their parents. Because my my dad, my parents, they spoke English, and as we grew older, they just kept speaking more English. But my cousins, their parents are older, so they just speak a lot more Hmong. Um, so when I am with my cousins, though. I feel more inclined to speak Hmong, you know, like it's an opportunity for me to practice. Cause I know that they're for one, I just know they're better than I am. Um, <laughs> and then like, you know, they, they naturally just speak it more, you know, for me, I might have to be more conscious of like, okay, I have to speak more Hmong now, you know, but, mm. but, um, yeah, when we're together, we usually speak a combination of both. Um, but again, as I mentioned, we seem to be speaking more English. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you dream in Hmong or do you dream in English? Or? I I want to say I dream in English. Mm. Even even when I see like dream about my parents, I I I want to say I speak English and they speak English too. Yeah, that's mm. so fascinating. It's like uh, I I think for me, I realize that when I wake up in the morning and my eyes open and I see the clock my first thought is in Chinese for some reason. I don't know oh, why. And then the uh, rest of the time, because I dream in English and I, you know, my deepest words that I can find to describe emotions or anguish or any of those things, I don't have enough vocabulary in Chinese to find those words. So mm-hmm. I probably have like a, maybe a kindergarten, first grade working knowledge of the language. <laughs> you know, so I can't understand like a newscast or anything, you know, like a, you know, mm-hmm. political things, but I can, but I, I find like there's this something with my, my brain wiring maybe <laughs> has me yeah. in Chinese <laughs> when I first wake up and I'm kind of coming to, so it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm curious, like, did you, like, what was it like growing up? Did you have, like, were you one of the few Hmong kids in school? Like, did you experience um, painful parts of your journey as a Hmong American? specifically in school or just in general in general like yeah what would you say are probably some of the more I guess my question is like what were some of the more painful parts of your journey okay I guess um I mean there you know not gonna lie there are a lot of painful parts about being among American but I want to say the one thing that is even though it's great it's also painful is the community you know because it's the community, like your family that, that supports you and brings you up. But because, you know, because we are all people and we all have our own sin, um, it is within that same community that can really tear you down. Um, (laughs) excuse me. So not like it didn't happen specifically to me, but you know, I can see within our families because we're close um at the same time like there are conflicts you know it's just like any regular immediate family like within your own immediate family um they you know the community wants to help you and support you but at the same time because of conflict and because of the sinful nature that we all do have um like i said they can tear you down you know or there can, there can be misunderstandings or miscommunication and then you can actually start to realize that you know your family perhaps is not always there for you you know and Mm. so it's you know it's really um an interesting conundrum because Mm. 
And, and I'm sure a lot of people experience that too. You know, it's their family that they're closest with, but then it's also their family that where that's the spot that hurts the most, you know? So um, I would say in, and not just like within my community, like my specific uncles and cousins and people that I grew up with, but like just among community in general, you know, it can be the community that discourages um, daughter-in-laws to go and, you know, pursue a career or something, you know, and, and I'm being more specific about like, you know, not, not talking about pursuing a career and being, becoming a doctor, but you know, careers like being singers or being actresses or, you know, things like that. It could be your very own community that the traditions and the customs don't support that because there's a specific view about being a woman in the house and mm. to stay in that role. So, you know, right. it's, so it's it's kind of a contrasting conflict within the community of like what we value and what we don't value and we want to help you in this area but we don't want to help you in that area you know and so yeah. it, so that's one of the things that um I am proud of but at the same time that that's where it hurts yeah so do you did you I mean how do you navigate that because you know pre-married you had this know, growing career, you know, doing acting, um, like, I, like, okay, quick aside, like, mm-hmm. do you feel like the, the, um, the way that Hmong community was portrayed in the movie Grand Torino, was that pretty accurate or was that Hollywood? I want to say that was pretty Hollywood, um, yeah. only because I think, for my character, Sue Lord, if if I was really her, and maybe it's just me too, I don't think I would have been that close to a white guy who was grumpy, you know? <laughs> my family would have told me, like, oh, don't go near that guy. Yeah. And I also would have been like, oh, no, like, I'm not going to go near that guy. Because, you know, I think um, growing up, it was, you know, and even my husband too, he would tell me that growing up, you know, his mom would tell him, like, don't go make friends at school, you know, like that you're going to, something bad's going to happen to you. Just go to school and come right back home, you know, and not just my husband either, but even friends that I've talked to where they're like, yeah, you know, I guess I don't really have friends because my parents would tell me go to school, learn, and then just come straight back home, you know, just, Mm. I think that might be coming from the idea that, um, or the fact that like being Hmong and having our parents be immigrants here, they were very unsure of things, you know, and so they yeah. just were extra safe. And, um, so yeah, that, that's what I would say. It was very Hollywood. Cause I, I don't think those char- Hmong characters would have really acted that way, um, towards a white man who seemed to be racist and he was racist, I guess you could say yeah. in the beginning. And yeah. Um, yeah. So pretty Hollywood and also things like, specific things they did in the movie um with like there was a ritual that was going on um in the movie um I would say that that was done wrong and I've never seen it done that way so I would say that's not how you do it but you know maybe there are people who do that way I don't know right right well I think it's so interesting because I I always you know kind of run back to perception (laughs) is reality like when we when we don't have relationships with people who are actually different than us, we start to assume that the way it's portrayed in media or, you know, or on you know, television or in the movies is kind of this blanket statement. Like those are 
how all Hmong people are and how the community acts. You know, it's like because there's not the proximity of actual relationships and real friends that we can talk to and say, hey, do you guys do that thing with the wood bowl, you know, or whatever, right. you know, it's like, and just mm-hmm. to be able to confirm or otherwise, you know, it's like, I think um, it's always um, helpful to to have real relationships with real people and to take the time to form those relationships and then be able to ask the questions. So anyway, mm-hmm. so going back, like let's like turn back, but for you personally then, you know, with this career, you know, um, this was pre-married days, obviously, you know, you were a teenager at the time in high school, right? That would mm-hmm. a whole movie thing happen. And how have you been navigating the, you know, just the culture and your own personal gifting and desires, and how does that all work for Whitney? It's it's been interesting, and and I still think about it to this day. You know, because I remember the moment that people were starting to find out that I got engaged, um, and that I was going to get, to get married. I didn't hear specifically from people, but I know that the vibe was like, "Oh, her career is done." You know, and and. Um, I remember there was even one person and he, he was like an, like a relative, an older distant relative. Mm-hmm. Um, he had thought that I had gotten pregnant and that was why I was getting married. Cause you know, it, it was like the idea of like, wow, like you have this career going on. Something must be wrong. You know, if mm-hmm. you're getting married, right. Like, well, I could still do this if I want, you know, I can still choose yeah. active if I get married, but you know, within the Hmong community, it's like, for within the adults, that is, you know, it's, it's the traditional thinking of like, well, you're going to be a daughter-in-law and your in-laws are not going to like that, you know? And so for me, after I got married, even, um, when I got the call about being in that Superman movie for a brief moment, I had thought about like, do I really want to do this? You know, like, what are my in-laws going to think? And, and that's, you know, the first thing that came up because growing up, right. That was just kind of ingrained into my mind that, a, da- a daughter-in-law should be like this figure, you know, this form, yeah. this the mold for her. Mm. And um, so that was one of the things that I thought about. It's like, okay, what would my in-laws think? And would they approve of this? You know, and it wasn't even like, oh, would my husband support me? It was more like, mm. oh, the first people that thought that came to my head was, you know, they were my in-laws. And so mm-hmm. um, I think it, it has definitely affected me too. And so, now that I'm a mother, um, and it's not even like it's so much of the community and what they're going to think about me being a daughter-in-law doing movies or doing film. It's more like, well, now that I'm a mother, I think I just want to be with my kids, you know, like, and, and, and I think also like not just the mold of being a perfect daughter-in-law, but the mold of being that perfect mom is in my head too, you know, like Mm. would a perfect mom or not even perfect, but would a good mom go and do movies, you know, for like long periods at a time, you know, like what kind of mom would leave their child back behind and, um, go, go pursue her dream. And Mm. so, you know, it's just both the culture that I come from and also my current status as a mother they don't, I, I wouldn't say they're holding me back, but then like, I do value them too. You know, like sure. I want to be a good daughter-in-law, I want to be a good wife and I want to be a great mom. And, mm-hmm. and, um, 
and, and I love being able to, excuse me, to, to serve my in-laws, you know, like I love being able to serve my husband and to be there for my kids. So it's, it's a conflict of interest for me. Um, but you know, so to this day, I do think about like, okay, if I landed a role that required me to go film elsewhere for a month, um, could I do it? And, and I'm not sure because it hasn't happened in this stage of my life, but I do, I do still think about like, what would my in-laws think? Would they think that I'm a bad daughter-in-law? Mm-hmm. I know that the younger monk community, mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't mind, you know, like the younger people my age, they'll probably be like, oh yeah, go do it. But it's really the adults. You know, I think growing up, I, I always had a, <clears throat> a desire to please my parents and, and the adults. And so that mentality is still with me. Like I want them to to see me as that great daughter. Um, so the, they're actually the ones who, in my head, I would say I think about a lot when it comes to breaking out of that mold, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think about like, what would their thoughts be about me? But mm-hmm. um, so it has, yeah, it does affect my thinking. But like I said, I haven't actually experienced it yet where mm-hmm. I had to actually um, decide whether I was going to pursue acting you know, because I'm, I'm occupied with being a mother right now, but um, mm-hmm. it definitely has, like I said, impacted me. So I still do think about acting nowadays and I'm like, do I want to go back? You know, sometimes I get the desire to go in and act again, you know, and sometimes I get like moments of like, oh, I'm so passionate about this. I want to do it again and I'll yearn mm-hmm. for it. And mm-hmm. then, and then I'll think about all the daughter-in-law related things, you know, and sure. And I know my husband, he supports me a hundred percent. You know, he's like, if you want to do it, go do it. But again, it's, it's the older people in the community who, who has really ingrained that thought into my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, They're the ones who I'm like, okay, well, when I come across this conflict or if I do come across a need to make a decision about going back to film, Mm -hmm. they're the ones who I'm going to have to go through first, but yeah. Oh, that, I feel like that totally captures, um, the, the, the tension that I think Asian Americans live in being in an Eastern and Western culture simultaneously, because Western culture is very individualistic, kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting self-actualized and the top of the pyramid and, you know, and Asian culture is all about, you know, who the, the collective, you know, so the opinion of the the previous generation is yep. hugely important. Mm-hmm. You know? And at the same time, there's the tension of being in the middle where it's like, but you want your sons and daughters to be able to see that there's all sorts of possibilities and, mm-hmm. you, know, that they, you know, to kind of like lead out in a new direction, maybe cutting right. path yeah. for the sake of the upcoming generation. And so there's that in between that I hear you kind of wrestling through yes. like, how mm-hmm. to do that. So for I, sure. yeah. I'm definitely um, interested to see how this all unfolds, Whitney. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, me too. Me too. (laughs) We'll be in touch for sure. Well, Mm -hmm. I would love um, just, you know, through your experience, you know, whether it's in just daily life, what is a leadership lesson or principle that you kind of um, order order your life around or that you admire or anything that you kind of hold to as um, a value or important in the area of leadership? Mm -hmm. The one leadership lesson that I've learned years ago and still sticks with me today is that 
leading is not about like being in like leading is not about getting people to do what you want to do. It's about stepping down and serving them and being at their level with them, you know, and humbling yourselves mm-hmm. and being a mother of three young boys under the age of three right now is <laughs> like, that really teaches a lesson to me. I literally have to get down to their level so that they can understand me so that I can try to lead them and teach them things, you know, like I can't just speak with, um, big vocabulary, you know, I really have to, and that's probably why today I'm having a hard time speaking because (laughs) several years I've been speaking at a level of a child. And so, you know, I guess that maybe that's why it's hard for me to really articulate what I'm trying to say, but yeah. So having to step down and get to their level so that they can understand Mm -hmm. and to even understand them, you know, and, um, nowadays I don't really feel like a leader because I'm a stay at home mom. And, you know, you, you don't actually see that you're doing a very important leadership job as a mother. So nowadays I don't really feel like one, but the reality is that I'm leading three boys, you know, and mm-hmm. big role and a big job to do, <clears throat> excuse me, a big job to do. So, um, yeah, really having, really having to learn about leadership through these boys has been something that has been a great blessing, but it's still the same lesson of like having to step down and be humble and get down to their level and, and trying to lead that way and to serve them, you know, and to serve with unconditional love that is, you know, and to yeah. be patient. That is, that is one thing I'm really learning with and trying to grow in with every child, with every kid I get, the more I feel like, okay, this patience is getting stretched, but you know, <laughs> That's also another thing about leadership, but yeah, I would say yeah. that would be the lesson. That's a, that's a huge lesson. And I think what a difference it would make if uh, more leaders led with that posture, because yeah. I think that with that posture really comes um, ownership. So mm-hmm. whether it's a company or a family, there's just that, that's a, it changes the dynamics when the leader chooses to serve Mm -hmm. rather than to kind of, you know, boss everybody around, which I think sometimes we think that that's what leadership is when Mm -hmm. it's influence and influence comes in all various ways. So yeah. Yeah. If I could get my three boys to do whatever I wanted by just bossing them around, life would be so much easier. (laughs) (laughs) Just be simple. I'll just tell them to do A, B, C, and D and it gets done. That would be so great, but that's <laughs> right. And I think that that's the thing with leadership is like we, there's one thing to, you know, like command an army of robots. Mm-hmm. There's a whole nother thing that has to do with relationships and the quality of relationships and the type of trust that gets developed. Mm-hmm. As there's the kind of influence that you're talking about, which goes far reaching is talking about the character formation of those we lead whether it's your children or your coworkers or whatever, there's, it's a whole nother uh, approach to leadership that is uh, much more long range rather than like the immediate, because you could probably become a dictator and boss your little boys around, you know, and oh, that, yeah. mm-hmm. but that could crush who they are and, you know, and you miss out on that relationship with them. I mean, yes. no, I just love that that is your leadership lesson as hard mm-hmm. as that is. And yeah. uh, having been there before with my three, 
this is, I, I can't tell you how many women who are like superstar women like you, Whitney, and it's like the motherhood thing. It just takes us out like, boy, this is the hardest yeah. job I've ever had. Like, yes, exactly. no you know, so anyway, I want to cheer you on in what you are pursuing in that way. Yeah, thank you so much. It does matter. It really does matter. So one of my questions then is, what is um, something from your heritage that you want to pass to your son that, in hopes that they would pass onto their next generation? There are so many things, but the one thing that I have been continually talking about is the community um, and, and being supportive of one another. So my um, my husband's brother they literally live right across the street and they have you know they have their kids and then um and then they're my boys you know so they have two boys and then they're my my three boys and one hope that I do have is that they'll grow to really support one another you know because I've seen that growing up with my dad and my uncles and my cousins and it's something that I I think is so valuable but I hope that they can do it with with love, you know, and with unconditional love and, and to do it without envy or jealousy, or I can't think of the word, but, you know, but to do it purely, you know, out of love and to really support one another. And, and I hope that they continue to do that and to support and love and and that their children can learn to do that. And that, you know, the community will continue to grow strong. Um, One thing I noticed is that with my father-in-law, like he doesn't have a lot of siblings, but we do have our local Hmong church here. And, and even though the members are not his direct siblings and everyone has different last names and didn't grow up together, the community is still strong, you know, and uh, it's because of that same mentality of like, we are all Hmong people. Let's support one another, you know, and because, because being Christ followers brought them all together, um, it doesn't change the fact that they still want to be a supporting community, you know, and, um, that's definitely something that I really learned and valued from my culture and my heritage that I really hope my children pass down, whether it's their actual blood relatives or whether it's just a community that they just went and became a part of, you know, like I hope that they can really um, demonstrate that in their lives too. I love that. I think this is probably in my opinion, what you just described is my greatest hope of our contribution as Asian Americans to the greater whole of society is that we bring in this idea of community and um, we need that so much in, I think our country, you know, I just think I just, if we could, if we could learn to operate with that kind of mentality where it's really looking out for one another, having each other's backs, um, being, realizing that we're part of something bigger than ourselves and our own nuclear families and individual lives. I think that that just brings about a whole different way that we make decisions and how we um, approach problems even and all of that. So um, I love that that's your vision. So, okay. Quick uh, question. What is your favorite Asian comfort food? I imagine it's Hmong, but what is your favorite food? There... There's so, so many too, but, um, the one that I'm thinking about right now is boiled chicken. (laughs) So, um, I just gave birth and I just finished my month's rest 
And mm-hmm. in the Hmong culture, you know, like you rest for a month after giving birth and all you're supposed to eat is boiled chicken. And <laughs> to my to my benefit, I love boiled chicken. And so, um, and the thing is you're only supposed to eat boiled chicken and that's it. But then I eat boiled chicken and anything else I want to eat. So I cheat <laughs> a little bit, but I love boiled chicken. So I'm just so glad that, you know, my, um, my in-laws, they go and they kill, bo- they kill chicken for me. And, um, and I mean, of course, chicken killed when you eat it, but you know, they go to the Amish farms and they bring the chicken, the whole chicken. And then I just boil that and eat that myself for a whole month. But, um, so that's my favorite. It's, it's simple. It's, literally just chicken and water with some lemongrass herbs and it's, it's just, and, and other herbs. Um, and it's just so, so tasty. I mean, you have to get the good chicken. You have to get tender chicken. You can't just wow. be some rooster. That's like really tough. That has tough meat, but, um, that's my favorite. So I love it. Well, hopefully maybe we can, um, link in some, of those herbs and stuff, you know, like a little recipe. Yeah. I could try that. That sounds amazing. Oh, yeah, I remember sure. you had shared, like that was one of your rites of passage was learning how to actually kill a chicken and <laughs> feathers, like pull the feathers and, and prepare it and all that. So I have yeah, great yeah. respect for you, Whitney. That's so awesome. <laughs> that is yeah. so awesome. So, After talking well, about that on project with um, some of our project teammates, I actually um, came back home that summer and killed a lot of chicken. I actually wanted to take a picture of me killing chicken yeah, and post it in the yeah. group, but I thought, okay, people might freak out, so let's not do this. <laughs> but, I, but I considered it. Well, I can imagine. I can only imagine how much more flavor comes from a fresh chicken versus mm-hmm. the grocery store kind, kind of like a tomato. Like if you grow your own tomato in the yard, it just has so much more robust flavor than a grocery store. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. I imagine the same thing with, with the, with the chicken thing. And yes, yeah, the whole month rest, they do that in Chinese culture as well. And, you know, oh. um, I think they do that in Korean culture as well, too. So it's oh, really? oh. yeah. so are you allowed to wash your hair? I'm, I'm Chinese, allowed you're to. Supposed, you're not supposed to in Chinese culture. So, yeah, I'm allowed to, but my mother-in-law will tell me like, don't touch, don't touch water or like specifically cold water. But mm-hmm. you know, they'll think that your your hands will, um, like start to hurt when you're older, you know, because of touching water or cold water yeah. after giving birth. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, so it's like this, and it's just I'm curious because there's thousands of years of, you know, history, and you know, mm-hmm. it's not coming from. I mean, I don't know where they originate from, but there's some of these, you know, lessons that we can learn. I think from our heritage that may not make sense in Western culture wise, but Eastern culture, there's, you know, some of these values. So yeah, yeah. very fascinating. Yay. Mm-hmm. Well, that is so great. Well, how can people um, find you? Like, are you on social media? Like do you have an Instagram handle that people could see your work and photography in particular and things like that? Yeah, I so I keep my life very private and personal. Um, and 
and I used to have like Twitter and stuff way back when I first, you know, did Gran Torino, but, um, I'm an introvert and I like to have a very quiet life. And so I try to keep that as private as possible. Um, and, and not only that, but like, I don't really, besides Facebook to connect with family, um, I don't really use Twitter or Instagram or any of that. There's stuff I only use it for, um, wedding photography that my sister and I do. But that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, could you share your wedding photography link in case someone in Wisconsin wanted oh, yeah. to hire you to do wedding photography? Because your work is excellent. I mean, oh, really. thank you so I much. Thank you. So my handle for wedding photography is um, Whitney and Messiah Photography. I do it with my sister, so we it's just both of our names together. Mm-hmm. That is so great. Well, we'll have those in the show notes. So anyone who's in the central Wisconsin area can come find you to do wedding photography. Mm -hmm. That is so great. Well, I so appreciate this conversation with you. It's been rich and I just love your heart and the way that you are living out of who you are and how you've been created and wired and also really honoring. I, I, when I think of you, Whitney, I think of you as a woman who honors her heritage and instead of completely discounting it, you know, I, I see you really embracing and wanting to retain and mm. pass along. And I just, um, it's really refreshing to talk with you about you and your heritage. And so I just, I love it. So thank you for being here. So. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us this week on Someday Is Now. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to leave a review so others can find out about the show. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Someday Is Now possible. The Someday Is Now logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung, The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Fan. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. Director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantel Runnels. Have a great week, and we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Now. Someday is Now.